Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how the humanities have tried to rebuild their brand at universities. And our Made in Arizona series visits a screen printer. But first, when Republican lawmakers met to elect their new leader at the beginning of this session, they chose Ben Toma to lead the majority caucus in the state house. It was seen as an optimistic choice given the new split government in our state. Toma, certainly a conservative, has a reputation as someone who can work with the other side. And that's important given the razor-thin margin Republicans are working with at the Capitol this year, not to mention a Democratic governor. But now critics say the far right wing of the GOP has taken over the agenda at the Capitol and that willing to negotiate leadership is nowhere to be found. Rachel Leingang, co-founder of the Arizona Agenda and Capitol Watcher, is here to talk with us more about this. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. So I want to begin. There have been there's been talk of rule changes at the Capitol that have effectively made it harder for anyone to to truly work with the governor or with Democrats, for that matter. Rules that have made it harder for Democrats to have their bills even voted on. Give us sort of a rundown to begin with, Rachel, of of what's changed and, and what hasn't. So at the beginning of the session, uh, they made some rule changes that limited debate on the floor and then also that um, made it so, uh, I guess, rank and file members of the GOP couldn't really go around their leadership to try to broker deals um, and bring those deals forward. Um, So that means that, you know, if if there's any kind of uh, big thing that's going to happen, like a budget deal, for instance, it would need to include the leaders in both chambers in order for it to be voted on. And then more recently, um, there's been sheets passed around to uh, Democrats that they have to get signed off on by at least 16 Republicans in the House that um, make it so they can get their bills heard. So basically, all of the Democratic caucus plus 16 Republicans, which is basically a supermajority, would need to be um, on board with the bill before it could be voted on. So uh, that's a, a pretty high threshold, and Republicans will say that they have to have that too. Mm-hmm. The difference being that they would need to have the majority of their caucus in order to get a bill heard, not the majority of Democrats as well. Mm-hmm. So um, it it I think it's new divided government here that's causing a lot of you know. People don't know how to operate within it, basically. Yeah, it's an experiment, it seems. What about the bills that have been heard uh, and passed, the the issues that have been discussed at the legislature so far this session? Are, are we seeing sort of a dominance of pet issues of the far right? If you look at the bills that have actually made it to the governor, no, not really. Um, there was a placeholder budget that got vetoed and then um, a housing tax uh, bill that got vetoed. And something about the scope scope of practice for doctors also got vetoed. Mm-hmm. Those are not pet issues of the far right. They're Republican issues, certainly, but that's about it. But we're seeing these, especially in the elections committee that's led by Wendy Rogers and the joint meeting that they had, uh, which was full of conspiracies. That, that has basically been um, a far right circus since the beginning of the session. And I think allowing that to happen gives some leeway to the far right of the caucus. But one thing to note, too, is that there really are not many moderates in the Republican caucus these Mm. days. There were a few 
in um, last last year's session who were the ones who crossed the aisle often. These days, there's maybe a couple that you could count, and they're they're more reliably conservative than moderate. Hmm. So it sounds like maybe not entirely out of the ordinary, but the the makeup just of 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 who's in who's been voted into the the caucus is is different now. Yeah, the numbers didn't change for Republicans. There's still a one vote majority in each chamber. That is hard enough for them to get yeah. anything done. Um, add in a Democratic governor that makes, you know, if they want to pass Republican bills. There's a veto stamp waiting for them, mm-hmm. um, but there there hasn't been effort really to to kind of break that uh, that partisan divide. And I think it might be because we had super dominated Republican politics for a long time that had much higher vote margins, and people haven't quite learned yet how to broker deals. So what then does all of this mean for actually working with a Democratic governor, which they're going to have to do, at least if things stay the same as they are now, at least when it comes to a budget? We should all hope that they're going to try to work together at some point um, if we want to, you know, fund the government, which is a pretty big deal. Um, I I don't know how this sort of stalemate breaks. Um, the governor, I think, by vetoing the stuff that's up there so far, uh, has made the Republican caucus even more emboldened. Mm -hmm. And I think as we continue on and see what kind of bills get up there, there may be some that are appeasing a far right flank. There are still some that are moving that are, you know, anti-LGBT, for instance, that are sure to be vetoed by Hobbes, but might make it up there as a statement. I think we'll see a lot of just political games Mm -hmm. rather than actual governing. And I wonder at what point does the governing have to begin? (laughs) Because you know, we have to have a budget by June 30th or we have a government shutdown. And we don't even know what that looks like, but I don't think we want to find out. June still seems a long way off, though. (laughs) (laughs) It'll go fast. It'll go fast. That is Rachel Leingang, co-founder of the Arizona Agenda, joining us this morning. Rachel, thanks as always. Thank you. Universities across the country over the last decade were dealing with a drop in the number of students majoring in the humanities. That includes at ASU. In fact, The New Yorker recently wrote about this, reporting that between 2012 and the start of the pandemic, ASU saw declines in majors including English, history, and women's studies. That last one dropped by 80 percent. But Jeffrey Cohen is working to reverse those trends. He's the Dean of Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at ASU. I spoke with him earlier and asked what he's seeing now in terms of students choosing humanities majors. Well, like a lot of universities, around 2012 or so, ASU saw a decline in the number of students who were signing up to be humanities majors. Not necessarily the number who would take humanities classes, but There was definitely a fall off in the number of majors and a pretty rapid decline. In 2018, I was asked to come to ASU and become Dean of Humanities because the number of students majoring was going down. Um, The number of classes that we offered that weren't filling was going up. And the president of the university, Michael Crow, really values humanities. He says it is absolutely fundamental to any serious endeavor that a university undertakes. So I became Dean of Humanities with the charge of ensuring that all of our students here have access to the best of what the humanities offer. Uh, Came in with a program to start to recruit more students into humanities majors by letting them know what the humanities offer them as far as careers, but also living a rich and fulfilling life. 
having students realize that humanities are actually at the cutting edge of knowledge. They're not just a kind of heritage enterprise, but there's something that really helps them to understand the complexities of the world they inhabit. So the good news is that starting in about 2018, the number of students majoring in the humanities has started to go up. I'm interested in what you said about letting students know about how humanities are sort of on the cutting edge of knowledge, because at a lot of universities, and I I suspect ASU falls into this as well, STEM fields, engineering, innovation, that kind of thing is really, really important, maybe to the detriment of courses or majors like humanities. So I'm curious how important it is that particular maybe selling point to students that, yes, you can do all these really interesting uh, technological things and scientific things, but also humanities here is also sort of in that same realm. Many students are drawn to STEM because they understand that STEM will give them a, a leg up in the job market and maybe lead very quickly to a career. It turns out not always to be the case. Uh, And not every student gets the joy out of studying from those disciplines that they expect to. So we in the humanities focus what we do on solving world problems and being a global citizen. We also put a heavy focus on contemporary events and problems and what a humanities frame can do to help to solve those problems. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about the kinds of conversations that you and your colleagues have with students and prospective students about what the humanities actually are and what kinds of things you can study. Because I would think for a lot of students, the kinds of of subjects you just described are not necessarily what students might think of as humanities. I think that's exactly right. One of the things that I discovered when I first became dean here is that our students don't understand what the humanities exactly are. These are names without consequence to some students, and I I totally understand it. Students don't tend to think in terms of a particular discipline. They think in terms of the kinds of issues that they'd like to study or the kinds of careers they'd like to have. So the humanities have to catch up with that. How easy or difficult is that to do? It's actually easier than you would think because we're already doing a lot of the teaching and a lot of the research that is completely aligned with these students' interests. It's just that uh, we weren't always advertising that we were doing it. And through programs like the Humanities Lab, we invite many students into this kind of research and they get hooked on it. I think the harder sell sometimes is getting our faculty to talk about the kinds of career skills that students learn along the way. You mentioned the Humanities Lab, and I wanted to ask you about that, because I think for, again, for a lot of students, they think of a lab, they think of a a science class. How do you try to take the humanities, which in many ways are more, less physical and maybe more verbal or thoughtful, things like that, and put them in a a real-world, hands-on experience kind of setting? Humanities Lab is predicated on bringing the best in humanistic methods into dialogue with other parts of the world. So a typical humanities lab has one person who's a humanities expert paired with somebody either from the public realm or a scientist or social scientist. And together they model for the students ways of having dialogue across disciplines and really emphasize that you've got to be interdisciplinary in your mode if you want to solve the problems that face us. 
So for example, one of the humanities labs that we have right now is called Designing the Future University. President Crow will go in and speak because he is a university designer. The students who take it have their chance to prototype different kinds of universities and think about the university as a total system that could be altered, could be tampered with, but it takes every discipline on board in order to think about those things. And then we have many humanities labs that really are about solving real world problems. You name the problem and <laughs> yeah. there's a humanities lab that's been focused on it. Yeah. Are you finding that there are other universities that are focusing on trying to do what you have done, which is to remind and maybe tell students what the humanities are and what kinds of careers they can have when they study humanities and generally encouraging more students to major in the humanities? I've noticed two divergent movements in the humanities. One is to kind of solidify around a traditional core and say that what we do is important. Students ought to realize that. It's a shame that they sometimes don't, but to kind of just close the door and say, look, if somebody knocks, we'll let them in. But for the time being, we're doing good stuff over here and people just need to realize it's good. We're not gonna try to sell anything. This isn't advertising. All right. Another mode, I think this is the ASU mode, but we've seen it at some other universities as well, is to keep the door open and to put out a welcome mat and to say to all students, and this is a place where you can thrive. This is a place where you can have your curiosity satisfied, where you can ask the kinds of questions that obsess you, that you can study with people that are going to support you in your own personal development, where you can become a critical thinker where you can do whatever you want. And the difference in that model is it's all about empowering students and focusing on what students gain rather than the closed door model, which is I'm the expert. If people want to come to me for some expertise, I'll give it to them. But otherwise, I'm very happy to write my books. Um, the humanities are not well served by closed doors. It really has to be the open door with the welcome mat. Otherwise, the the students in this generation now and the generations to come are going to not come to the humanities if they don't feel like it's a place where they can belong. All right. That is Jeffrey Cohen, Dean of Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at ASU. Jeffrey, thanks so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. In 2015, Arizona became the first state to require students to pass a civics test before they can graduate high school. It's a trend that's been copied in other states since, and now the Arizona Board of Regents is putting a similar program in place in Arizona's universities. It's called the American Institutions Requirement, a civics curriculum that will build on hopefully what students are taught in high school. Suzanne Dovey is is the person in charge of shaping that program at the University of Arizona. She's a professor in the School of Government and Public Policy there, and she's in the pilot stages of the program now, testing out a civics course for her students this semester. I spoke with her more about it. Young people in Arizona have a really good reason to pay attention to politics. For um, Arizona was 
identified as one of the few states where young people can actually make a huge impact on the outcome of the election. So we're, yeah. they've attributed the going purple in the last presidential election as the increase of young people voting. Right, right. So, I mean, I guess part of what you're probably trying to do here as you shape this curriculum is talk to them about the power that they have and the importance of it. Exactly. One of the things that really um, gets me so sad is that students feel really disaffected, um, whether it's because they were discouraged because Bernie lost or possibly because they feel like Washington is so out of touch with their own concerns, like about college debt. Yeah. They, they have this sense that the government is deeply broken and so it's it's an act of faith almost to mm -hmm. um, believe that your vote will matter. Yeah, fair enough. So let's talk then about the civics curriculum you're trying to shape at the University of Arizona. I know it's still in sort of testing and piloting stages right now, but how are you approaching it? So I approach it pluralistically, which means I don't have some kind of ideological agenda. What I'm really concerned about is the fate of our democracy. The United States um, in 2016, for the first time, was ranked by political scientists as a flawed democracy. Mm -hmm. And the reason we were flawed is because our political culture is so toxic and negative partisanship is so high. And so I want my students to recognize that we need democracy most when we disagree with each other. We need mm. a fair procedure for settling conflicts. And instead of casting our political opponents as our evil enemies, I think we have to recognize that our political opponents are people we need to compromise with in order to make politics work. How is that message met from students so far? You know, my classes are, and this is just me personally as a teacher, I, I tell that my students, you can spend the rest of your life talking with people you agree with, which is what most people do. What I want my classes to show is that you can actually reasonably disagree. And so that means being able to justify your political opinions using empirical evidence and moral arguments. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I would say is really crucial is that, you know, if, st if students knew all the facts and had all their arguments, they wouldn't be in college in a political <laughs> science department. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what we find is most people just mimic their arguments of their parents. Mm. So if we want uh, informed electorate, we need to sort of ramp up what we expect of our students. I know that the regents were really concerned about things like, oh, students don't know that the Supreme Court is not elected, or mm -hmm. last semester, um, one of my students thought that the Equal Rights Amendment was already in the Constitution. Right. So it's very obvious to me that students have different levels of knowledge. Um, I actually gave my introduction to political ideas class, the U.S. Citizenship Test, and I think 70% passed it. Oh, hey, that's pretty good. That just, yeah, that <laughs> is pretty good. Except if you look at the questions of the U.S. 
Um, citizens test it's questions like name the pacific ocean or you know name one native american tribe so i always say those are siri questions Mm. not the kinds of higher level questions that are really going to give citizens the capacities to evaluate their representatives. Right. So at the college level, you have to push past that. I mean, so this is the test that is now required at least a 60 percent, I think, passage in Arizona high schools due to a 2014 law. Um, and and Arizona was kind of the first state to do that. And we've kind of seen it copycatted around the country. But do you think at least at that very basic level for the citizenship test and in, in Arizona civics classes in high schools, it's making a difference? Um. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> um, that those kinds of informational questions or f- like political facts, I think they're really good sticks to sort of beat up people about, you know, being bad citizens. But the truth is, you know, you you retain knowledge that is useful to your life. Mm. And, you know, if they had questions on the citizenship test about, I don't know, um, legal search and seizure procedures of the police Mm. or whether, you know, you can film the police in a protest. There There might be more information that citizens could retain. Conversely, if we, I think if people understood the problems of misinformation and how really conspiracy theories right now have a really powerful life of their own right now, then I think we would have more faith in our government. Mm. And this is what I want to say, which is I want citizens that are both critical of the United States and proud of it, like to understand ways in which our government has changed. We are not the same country that we were during the founding. But we also still have problems. And I think, you know, being a good American is recognizing that we can approximate our ideals even better. Are you prepared for the sort of political landscape that we live in and criticism about agendas and indoctrination in, in universities and public schools? Yes, I am prepared. And actually, one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, if you look at the people on my committee that's coming up with this curriculum, you see we have someone from the Federalist Society. We have someone who's a very progressive historian. We have someone who's, I would say, is a libertarian pro-market business school person. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. have the diversity. So honestly, I've never paid so much attention to the language of a university document, because we want students to have some choice in what kind of civics learning they're engaged in. And that's because what they found is if you just do a three branches of government, what are their names course, that doesn't stick. If you show them, for instance, okay, how does the law impact the study of genetics? Or how does, you know, I'm interested in architecture and I want to think about um, building regulations, then you can, you sort of hook them with their own interests. And that's really key. Yeah. All right. That is Suzanne Dovey, professor in the School of Government and Political Policy at the University of Arizona. She's the one behind the new civics curriculum that will be in place there soon. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this. I appreciate you you taking the time. 
It's been a pleasure, Lauren. Thank you. The Mexican Revolution saw droves of women move across the border to the U.S. in the early 1900s. The period of conflict drew a lot of families north looking for work and a better life, especially those who lost their husbands and fathers in the war. Mexican women often had to become both financial and familial heads of households, providing for the families in the brand new country. Yvonne de la Torre Montiel and her husband Miguel chronicled these stories in their new book, World of Our Mothers. The project captures the oral histories of 45 women who immigrated from Mexico to the U.S. in this time, and their experiences living and working in Arizona mining towns and barrios. I spoke with her more about the challenges they faced crossing the border in such a violent time. So these women, you know, are our mothers and our grandmothers and our great grandmothers. So they're they're personal narratives. They're they're the protagonists. Uh, it's their voices, and uh, the intent, of course, was to promote an understanding. You know, to give voice to this generation that has never been heard. So yeah. I, I think book is really unique in that sense. Yeah. And we want future generations to be able to to listen to to these women and to connect to them. So, I mean, as you gathered these stories, it sounded like this happened over a long period of time. And most of these women, or if not all of them, have passed now. But you you these were sort of first person interviews on like cassette tapes, right? Yes. Old time cassette tape. So we've gone <laughs> the whole process of, you know, digitizing things. So I want to back up for a moment before we talk more about what their life was like here in America and talk about the roots of this. Like what was happening during the Mexican Revolution that pushed these women forward and, and pushed them into the US to begin with? Well, one of the things that happened, of course, is there was a, a lot of well, the revolution created a lot of turmoil in people's lives, you know, taking taking their land, sometimes even conscripting some of the young men, mm. uh, some of the young boys, you know, uh, abducting young women and, and girls. So that was one of the reasons, of course, a lot of the, the people left Mexico. They, they wanted to protect their families. During that era, it's also people dying from the pandemic, mm. the, the influenza, and uh, in, during the revolution itself. Yeah, so they come to the U.S. and land in sort of various places. A lot of the women that you talk to are, you know, ended up in Arizona, in Arizona mining towns here, in Phoenix, in Barrios here. Tell us a little bit about what they were met with once they came to this country. One of the things that was happening simultaneously with the revolution is that the cotton industry in Arizona, agriculture and mining were booming. And so there were actually contractors going to Mexico to recruit people to come hmm. to the US to work the, the cotton fields and also to work the mines and, and even the railroads. So lots of times what happened is that uh, some of the contractors would go into Mexico and they said, well, you, yes, you know, bring your family. You're going to make a lot of money, you know, with all those kids, you know, working the fields, you're going to really do well. So they promised them, they promised them places to live, you know, a good life, enough money. And then some of them, of course, came temporarily, you know, they're, 
their ambition was to just work here for a while and to go back to Mexico. You know, the, the notion of the sojourner, mm -hmm. but that, that didn't always happen. Uh, for example, Fernanda, who came in 1924, she came with her, her, uh, her parents and well, quite a few of her brother, brother's family and, and her children. And their idea was to work and then go back to Mexico. And uh, so they worked the fields in Litchfield and they worked them for about 10 years. And what Fernanda says is, you know, after 10 years, we didn't even make uh, a penny split in half. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were not able to save anything. So it sounds like a lot of these women ended up sort of taking over the survival of their families on their own. Men were lost in war, abandoned them. What happened so that so many of these women became central to their work and to the, the family survival? Yes, that's right. And and that was something that, that uh, really surprised me, too, is the women as economic heads of households. And I, and I think what we learned, too, is that women, children, you know, families, I mean, they worked from the age of eight. So the family was an economic unit and, and everybody worked, you know, what made it more difficult, of course, is when fathers either, you know, died or, or were killed in some kind of a brawl, or they were killed in, in the mining towns, you know, because they were quite dangerous, of course, or even maimed in a lumber mill, mm -hmm. or simply abandoned their families, which meant that, again, women always worked, but they became the sole support of their families, and oftentimes with the help of their children. And of course, the consequences of that is that, you know, children don't always get to go to school because they are working, you know, to help make ends meet. Yeah. Yeah. So let me end, Yvonne, with a few questions about the why behind this, which you started to get at there. Um, I mean, you end the book with kind of a almost like a tutorial on how readers can connect and examine their own family histories. Why was that important for you? I think that there are a lot of kind of myths and, and stereotypes. First of all, we've never heard from this generation before. And then, you know, when I step back and I look, you know, at my mother and actually all of this helped me to kind of look at my family is that, you know, we have an image of our mothers and our grandmothers from our point of view. You know, they nurture us, they care for us, they they make our favorite dishes, perhaps, or sometimes they admonish us, you know, but in, in, in all instances, they, they love us. And so this is really a real shift where we get to hear them speaking to us. You know, it's their point of view. And so it's an opportunity for us to do some deep listening to see what they have to say to us mm. and other generations. For example, you know, my interpretation of the interviews maybe are perhaps different than 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 my daughters or my, my grandchildren. One of the things that that I, I believe that in many ways, the women live through the dreamers because for the mm. women, you know, education, that's one of the things that kind of runs through this, that education was extremely important to them. Yeah. They're very hardworking and, and very competent. And, you know, I think that, you know, they have so much, they have so much to share with us, you know, their, their dignity. 
they have a lot to say in terms of their philosophy of living and about language and about education and about uh, how we should comport ourselves and and how we should speak up. All right, we'll leave it there. That is Yvonne de la Torre Montiel, co-author of World of Our Mothers, as well as a faculty emeritus at South Mountain Community College, joining us to talk more about the new book. Yvonne, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you for all of your reflections on this. It's really been interesting. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you very much. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. In Phoenix, I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. And now we bring you another in our series of conversations with makers called Made in Arizona. It just, it connected me to my roots and it's just something so portable and inexpensive and felt that I could take risk with embroidery in a way that I couldn't take risks in other areas of art. A lot of my paintings, gravity doesn't matter a whole lot. From there, I had a request for uh, hand-dyed wedding gowns, and that's how it started. <laughs> so I didn't plan to be a wedding designer. I just knew I wanted to work for myself. I love to sew. I love to just be in my piece. I try to tug at people's heartstrings. I try to do something disturbing, but usually a duality piece. But this year was all about, you know what? I don't want any madness in my work. I want it really just to be this big, beautiful, place that I want to live in. Dance wasn't something that is necessarily seen in galleries, you know? And I just remember being like, this is the key. This is how dance gets out there. I escaped real life and I went back in time. Today, we visit a Tempe screen printing shop called Hamster Labs. Quinn Murphy runs and owns it. He does custom design and screen printing, including a lot of concert posters. When I stopped by, I asked Murphy to explain what screen printing actually is. So, you take an image, you put it on the paper, put it onto a shirt, put it on anything. Um, It's basically creating artwork through stencils. So, does somebody or do you, like, draw something on paper? Do you use a computer to to, to generate the art and then put it onto whatever you want to do? Or, like, how, how do you get art from, like, your mind to whatever it is you're putting it onto? Yeah, so it's uh, it can work several ways. I mean, traditional ways are, are drawing it on paper and then transferring that to a screen. Um, a lot of things have gone digital these days, obviously, so I work mostly on the computer. Uh, I'll draw my image there. Um, at that point, I'll print out what's called a transparency, which is basically the stencil that I was mentioning, where that creates a, a, a stencil. <laughs> and then uh, that will block out the light when you burn the screen. So once you wash out the emulsion on the screen, Where the stencil was, the image now exists. And then it just basically comes down to then putting ink through the screen and putting it on the paper. Murphy says it can take a lot of time to design the artwork. He estimates it between 5 and 45 hours. And then it goes through the rest of the processes he mentioned until it finally gets to the printing, which can take 6 to 8 hours, depending on how many colors he's using and how many prints he's making. And Murphy says each print is its own creation. He lays down one color at a time on the number of sheets he's making and then moves on to the next color until he's done. He says it's a manual process. He can't just make one and then copy it to finish off the order. That's part of the the draw is, you know, each one is individual. So it's a a a one-of-a-kind, kind of. We try to, you know, you try to make them as close to 
the same as you can and try to be as perfect as you can but it's it's a handmade thing so you have to celebrate the imperfections in in that sense murphy says he didn't start out doing screen printing it was something he found along the way but he says he was always interested in art yeah i mean since i was a kid i would always um you know i love comic books i love cartoons i would always draw from those and copy those it kind of developed as i was growing up and, and as i was going through high school and college that i knew i wanted to do something with art Um, And it wasn't until later on that I found screen printing as a medium. And I realized then that I'm like, this is what I was meant to do. This, this, this is it. You know, this is my, this is my art form. How did you find it? Uh, Two, two ways. One, I've always been a fan of gig posters and and show posters. I've always been a fan of that artwork and and just that, that world. And two, uh, I was at a point in my career that I didn't like what I did anymore. I did do graphic design, but I didn't feeling love in it anymore. And I, and I wanted to enjoy that still. So I, I figured out how to screen print, started out from the beginning with, with no experience. And, and like I said, it turned out to be the one thing that I love. And that's, that's the way it goes now. So take me through the process of learning how to do it, because this strikes me as somebody who does not know how to do it, that it's not something that you can just sort of snap your fingers and pick up. Like I would imagine there's a lot to it. It's fairly complicated. Like how'd you learn how to do this? So uh, learning how to do it was, um, you know, YouTube helps. So that was there, um, looking at books, trying to figure out, trying to break down the process of it too. It, it's um, not highly technical process, but it is one that, that doesn't allow for any forgiveness, which is kind of fun. Um, and then the way you, you create your art too uh, also completely changed when I started to screen print. So I, I would approach it differently than, than what I did before. Um, you know, For example, I, I would build something in Photoshop and just layer, 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 layer. And then once you're done, you hit print on the printer and and you have your final product but with screen printing you have to be a little bit more methodical with it and and have to know what you're going to do going into it know how many colors you're going to be working with know how those colors are going to interact with one another how they're going to overlay or where they're going to sit and so it it really changed the way I approached what I did as as artwork and, and as design and then learning the process was really just a lot of trial and error and a lot of a lot of mistakes were made and you know figuring out saying why is this doing this like why is the ink spilling out on this side now and not over on this side um why is my transparency not working correctly why is the screen not burned correctly why and, and all those things i mean there's it's trials that that you go through the process and just figure out as you go yeah the, the phrase that kept coming to mind as you were describing that is very much trial and error like you have to figure out is this going to work uh, why didn't this work? Why did this work? And use that as you go forward. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's, um, you, you gotta be willing to fail and, and, you know, that's the, that's the best thing you can do is fail at it because that's, what's going to make you understand or help, help you understand, um, how to do it better. So you mentioned gig posters. I know that you're really into music. How did you like try to combine your love of music, your love of art, and your, your, at that point, newfound love of, of screen printing? Well, they all kind of, uh, live together as a whole anyway. So it was just a matter of figuring out how to get into that scene and how to get into that industry. Um, practicing with, with prints of my own and, and my own artwork, um, working with any bands, any friends that I knew that were in a band and say, hey, let me, you know, let me make a poster for you. Let me, let me design your shirts for you. And just kind of growing in that sense and saying, you know, taking on anything and everything that I could to kind of get that practice, that, that real life practice. Is it helpful for you if you know the music or maybe even if you like the music to help you sort of, especially if you're designing the artwork to help you figure out like what it should look like? 
I, I think so. I mean, for, for me, that's how it works for me. I, I feel like I, I kind of make everything specific to and, and custom to that, that band or that sound or, or that customer or client, whatever it is. It helps me, and, you know, it also allows you to, to kind of uh, find new music, too, which is great. So it's, 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 it's a win-win. Who needs Spotify when you can just screen print the posters, right? Yeah, right? There you go. <laughs> I'll find them that way. What has surprised you the most about doing this job from what you thought it might be when you first got into it? <laughs> that I'm still doing it. <laughs> uh, no, man, it, it's, um, I mean, it, it's, the industry has been around, screen printing has been around for forever, and it's, there's, there's a lot of competition out there, especially in the shirt world. I, I wanted to, to kind of approach it differently. And I think even with my lack of business knowledge and being a business owner, um, I feel like I did it right. More importantly, I feel like I didn't do it wrong, you know. So it's, uh, it's, it, it is, it's surprising to me that I still get to do this every day and I wake up and I'm like, hey, this is, this is what I do. Well, so that's an interesting point because, as you say, you had to learn the process of screen printing. But it sounds like you also had to learn how to own a business, right? Like that's not something that, you know, everybody just knows how to do like how did you go about trying to figure out how to keep this place afloat while you were still doing your art uh, <laughs> i don't know if i have yet it's, i might be figuring it out but it, it is it's it's something that they don't tell you about i mean you get into starting a business as as a passion of what you want to do they don't tell you that you also have to do the finances do the do the taxes do the emails do the the inventory run the business you know start everything you wear all the hats is it my favorite part? No. But is it a necessary part? Yes. And uh, you just kind of do it. You just have to do it. That's it. Dive in. Quinn Murphy owns and runs Hamster Labs in Tempe. That's it for this episode of The Show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.